The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Week in Review, our chance to chew over, digest and perhaps spit out the big stories of the past seven days. Up for discussion this week. They can kill in the name of Karl Marx or George Washington, it doesn't matter. What we cannot do is use this tragedy as one more occasion to turn on each other. Journalists and pundits should not manufacture a blood libel. After the bloodshed in Arizona, we look at the debate over extreme rhetoric in America and ask, is the Tea Party now over for the likes of Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck as America searches for a kinder, gentler political conversation? Also in the podcast, we talk about the secret policeman who apparently had a ball working undercover as an eco-protester who seemed to regard multiple affairs as part of the job description. And... Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr Bond, I expect you to die. With the new James Bond film finally given its licence to shoot, we look forward to the latest outing for 007. I'm Jonathan Friedland, looking back in anger, mirth and general bafflement of the last seven days. And this is the Week in Review from The Guardian. And joining me in the studio for this, our maiden voyage, we've got the writer and broadcaster John Ronson, comedian Josie Long, and The Guardian's legal affairs correspondent, Afua Hirsch. Happy New Year to all of you. Uh, any of you made any new resolutions? And if so, how are they going? Josie, start with you. Um, I decided that this week especially was going to be the start of my new life and it was going to be that I exercised every life. morning. Exactly, I was going to be <laughs> the person that I was born to be and uh, I am just exactly the same as I used to be, but <laughs> worse now. Not doing the exercise thing. No, I, I'm sleeping through the exercise. I've, <laughs> I've gone to a yoga class now, twice, today and yesterday, and missed it both times <laughs> and seen my friend in the little studio with his back to me doing the... Oh, so you've had your face the, pressed up against the glass. <laughs> Look, being kept out, John. Any resolutions you've made or yet? Kept? No, not really. I, I, I'm sort of quite happy with my sort of funk of panic and misery and work and guilt. Afua Hirsch, I'm sure everybody loves you just the way you are. But do you have any um, resolutions <laughs> or changes planned? Yeah, my resolution is to find a new TV addiction. Actually, ah. because I had my first ever TV addiction last year, which, which was? was The Wire, which I discovered very late. That is a bit late. But nice then got you. promptly, utterly addicted. And ever since I finished series five, I've just felt this incredible void in oh. my life. We are now officially a Guardian podcast because we have mentioned The Wire. Very good. We are going to talk, though, not about our proposals and prospects for the year ahead, but for of this week. And there is. Only one place to start, and that is with the gruesome events in Arizona. Last weekend, 22-year-old Jared Lee Loughner shot Democratic Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords in the head before opening fire on the rest of the crowd. He killed six people, including a nine-year-old girl. In the immediate aftermath of the violence, the local sheriff, Clarence Dupnick, was quick to point the finger at what he saw as the underlying cause of the shootings. We need to do a little soul searching because I think it's the vitriolic rhetoric that we hear day in and day out from uh, people in the radio business and some people in the TV business and what we see on TV and how our youngsters are being raised. That this has not become the nice United States of America that most of us grew up in. And I think it's time that we do the soul-searching. As you'd expect, Fox News's resident motormouth, Glenn Beck, didn't quite see things the same way. 
They're dangerous. It's hate speech, you know. Nothing but violent rhetoric. They've been using this storyline for a very, very long time. It's almost laughable at this point. They've been wrong so many times. They're desperately using every opportunity to try to convince you that somehow or another Sarah Palin is dangerous. Somehow or another Rush Limbaugh is dangerous than I am. Anything to shut her down, shut me up, shut talk radio down, shut Fox News off then everything will be sunshine and lollipops. It took a few more days for Sarah Palin herself to weigh in. In a videotaped message in front of a set that was meant to look presidential, but in fact looked like the lobby of a travelodge, she used language so inflammatory even Mel Gibson would have blushed. I've spent the last few days reflecting on what happened and praying for guidance. After the shocking tragedy, I listened at first puzzled, then with concern. And now, with sadness, to the irresponsible statements from people attempting to apportion blame for this terrible event. Now, President Obama and I may not agree on everything, but I know he would join me in affirming the health of our democratic process. But, especially within hours of a tragedy unfolding, journalists and pundits should not manufacture a blood libel that serves only to incite the very hatred and violence that they purport to condemn. That is reprehensible. Well, that was the view from the right. After several days of partisan bickering, it was time for what one pundit called the adult in the room to speak. Barack Obama delivered what The Guardian in its editorial called the finest speech of his presidency so far. If this tragedy prompts reflection and debate, as it should. Let's make sure it's worthy of those we have lost. Let's make sure it's not on the usual plane of politics and point scoring and pettiness that drifts away in the next news cycle. And if, as has been discussed in recent days, their death helps usher in more civility in our public discourse, Let us remember it is not because a simple lack of civility caused this tragedy. It did not. But rather because only a more civil and honest public discourse can help us face up to the challenges of our nation in a way that would make them proud. John Ronson, let's start with you. You wrote, uh, I think perhaps a decade ago, a book called Them, Adventures Among Extremists, where you did spend time with people on the fringes of political life, including in America. Um, It's those fringes that are to the fore now, people talking about them. Looking at that, listening to the way Obama spoke, do you think this is going to be some kind of watershed moment for America? It doesn't seem that way to me. It, It happened after the Oklahoma City bombing. That pretty much killed off the militia movement and the white separatist movement, uh, they felt themselves responsible in a way for it. But I don't see that happening with, with this so much. It's funny because I was thinking that that had killed off the militia movement and yet those people on the far right obviously just resurfaced and found a new yeah, they outlet. Went, yeah, they went very, very quiet in the latter part of the Clinton years and then obviously through through the Bush years. And, and the sort of craziness during the Bush years, you know, sprung up in all sorts of unexpected places with sort of polemicists on the left who were, who were kind of um, becoming like conspiracy theorists. And then you had had, you know, 9-11 truthers who came from, from all over the place. And, and yeah, the sort of militias lay dormant, really, until 
Glenn Beck and, um, you know, had, had the resurgence with Alex Jones and David Icke and so on. I mean, we, all of which you've written party. about. And what about this thing of Fox News in particular? People have been pointing the finger at them and it emerged this week that there are 10,000 uh, petition with 10,000 signatures being put to uh, Roger Ailes, who's the boss of Fox News, saying, you know, drop Glenn Beck, change the kind of tone of the network. Is that, is that the way to go to actually try and silence Fox, do you think? Well, he's in trouble again, isn't he, Glenn Beck, because of this documentary he made about George Soros in which he made various other anti-Semitic The puppet comments. master. <laughs> the puppet master. Yeah. I don't think it's right to just explain what happened on the basis of the whole political climate. Having said that, I think that this event has shone a spotlight on what's happening in America. And I thought Sarah Palin's response was just fascinating on so many levels. One, the way that she characterised the shooting, you know, and she called this man evil. And, you know, to me, that just summarises the whole problem. You know, this is clearly somebody who's got mental health problems, who's got his own demons. And to kind of try and turn this again into this battle of good versus evil, it's totally characteristic of exactly what is wrong with the right in America at the moment. And secondly, how she managed to take something which everybody agrees is a tragedy and turn it into an attack against her and make herself the victim. To me, it's just astonishing, you know, and apart from the whole issue about blood libel, which I personally think... I'm not sure I would give her the credit to to assume she really knows the the implications and the background of that term. Um, But I I think it's more the fact that she sees herself as this victim um, when the objective fact is that she has been using this inflammatory language um, with gusto. I mean, the Twitter has been very eloquent on this subject. There was one tweet saying about the blood libel from somebody clearly Jewish saying, well, now we realise our mistake. For centuries, we've had the temerity to compare our persecution to hers. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, but she does, what is the right response to Sarah Palin and Josie Long? I don't know what we're meant to think about her. Is she, are we meant to laugh at her or are we meant to be frightened of her? That's the problem. with it. It's like with George Bush. To begin with, you go, oh, yeah, isn't it funny? He says all these stupid things. And then you're reminded, or you were reminded on a very regular basis, that he was still actively pursuing legislation that was awful and wrong. And that's the thing with her as well. It's like, I was thinking, listening to that clip, she reminds me a lot of um, when I was a teenager, I bought loads of exercise tapes from the 1980s. <laughs> and she reminds of like her voice and the, the tone of it really sounds like that. It's like but... if Carrie's mother was doing an exercise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most of the people I've been speaking to in America do believe it's sort of over for her. Uh, and that he, she, uh, even though she's very popular with her base, it is only her base. And that you know, there's 25% of the country that maybe would die in a ditch for her and believe in her fervently, but she just cannot reach beyond them and cannot win a majority. And I think perhaps you feel the events of this week, the videotape and the difference between her response and Obama's, this gulf between them, has sort of closed it down. Afua Hirsch. It's been such a roller coaster ride um, with American politics, you know, and I think a lot of people underestimated the American public um, when it came to Obama's election and didn't think America was capable of electing him and felt that, you know, America had kind of showed its better side to us. Um, and then very quickly, you know, or at the same time, we were seeing that we had underestimated how many people in America are willing to vote for someone like Sarah Palin, which was also scary. Um, and I think I'd underestimated, I didn't take her that seriously. I thought she was, I didn't think that she was a joke but I just didn't think that there were enough people in America who could seriously vote for her to, for that to be taken seriously and I think she is a more serious political force than it than it's easy to accept and I think it's that unpredictability yes, that makes it right. difficult to just write she her She definitely off. has clear absolutely natural political talent I mean she does have a kind of instinct for the media and the way she does this very unusual thing of she communicates via Twitter, Facebook release video messages I mean the only sort of hostages do that but she does that she never does interviews or anything she's got 
got she has found her own new way of talking, John. Also, I think just just because uh, Obama responded very very well and the right responded very very badly doesn't mean that we as liberals you know that our, our community has been like fantastic and all of this let me just look at the SPLC's response that's who, a sort of anti-racist group in America yeah anti-racist group in America who who you know were really fanning the idea that that Jared Lee Lochner's was just a sort of you know a typical member of the Tea Party, when, yeah. when in fact, you know, this is a story about mental health issues. This isn't a story about politics. So, you know, we shouldn't, in, in sort of saying this is all sort of, you know, yeah. Tea Party conspiracy, we're acting as badly no, as... No, I that. think in a way that's right. And the point I'm in about Obama being the adult in the room was that there had been partisan bickering from left and right, actually, and point scoring from left and right, some of which I descended into just now myself. And then he came in and said, we've got to be above this. And, and he was. He was speaking to both yeah. left and right in saying that's that. That's what he does so well, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is where he really excels. And I think that there's been a, a shortage of opportunities for him to really do that since he came into office, which is why everyone's saying, oh, we've fallen in love with him again. Uh, you said, uh, John, it's about mental health issues. Other people are saying that... The the, the big issue here is guns, that this wouldn't have happened like this if it wasn't guns. That debate hardly happens in America. But uh, is it too simplistic from our, from, you know, is it a very foreigner's view, Josie, do you think, to think they should just not have so many guns? What was really uh, shocking to me was that after this event, gun purchases shot up that weekend. That was really scary to me because instead of people going, well, that's sobering, oh, I t- don't want to be around guns, they were like, well, I'm going to get one of them. <laughs> Look at that. It's like, it's awful to think that they were like, well, I'd better protect myself by getting a gun. Like, th- that's the logic that's so ingrained. And that's what would happen here, isn't it? For the minute something like this happened, they would close whatever loophole it was. They would, after Dunblane, that happened. And it's just, the, in a way, what Jay's saying, it's the, almost the opposite impulse. I'm told that the reason why uh, sales surged is that the people would went out very much to get the specific magazine clip, the ammunition clip he had bought, um, because they assumed that l- will now be banned. Ah. And so therefore they were quickly like, snapping them up while stocks last. It wasn't you know, like they thought he was especially good. <laughs> but again, you would think that it would it would somehow just put you off you the whole think. idea rather than, you know, I better get that before they, they, before they sell out, before they stop selling it. But is this That's one of these Americans are from Mars, Europeans from Venus moments where we just realise we're incredibly different? You do right? wonder. I well, mean, when yeah. Obama got elected, gun sales went up dramatically as well. And, and you know, I just can't find any logical way within my frame of reference of that making sense. They so, did, they went up. You were shocked, Josie. No, I can but it say. would be lovely to see a timeline of when gun sales <laughs> spiked and what that meant yeah. just, just to... Well, it went up. They went. They did spike enormously, up fifty percent the week he was elected. The Guardians. Gary Young reported this week. That is uh, as much as we'll do right here. But for more comment and analysis of the Arizona shootings, do head to guardian.co.uk forward slash America. The Week in Review with Jonathan Friedland. It sounds like the plot for one of those edgy new dramas or perhaps a feature-length episode of Spooks, the extraordinary story of Mark Kennedy, a police officer who spent seven years working undercover amongst the environmental protest movement. Kennedy took part in and organised many of the most high-profile demonstrations of the past decade, but he's now quit the force and stands accused of having crossed the line from spy to agent provocateur, pushing his comrades to go further than they would ever have gone without him. But did they influence him just as much as he influenced them? Did he, in the end, become one of them? Did he go native? We'll get into that side of things in a moment. But first, Afua, 
Let's focus on some of these legal issues because a number of cases have now collapsed due to Kennedy's involvement. Uh, Kennedy's real name Stone, I think, is Mark Stone was the name he went in, un- undercover yeah. with. There's even talk that the Met authorised Kennedy to use sex as a means of gathering intelligence, several relationships with uh, activists. What's the sort of legal rules on this? Was this is this okay legally for him to have done this? There's so many different aspects to this. I mean, first of all, um, you mentioned cases collapsing. There's the issue of disclosure. And the really interesting thing in this case is that the um, defendants who were due to go on trial for conspiring to shut down the power station, the environmental activists, they found out about Mark Kennedy. And as a result, their defence lawyers asked the prosecution for disclosure to tell them about it so that they could use it in evidence. And the prosecution, not knowing they already knew, said, we have nothing to disclose. The defence then filed an abuse of process application and the case was thrown out. Um, and it really raises questions. There is a, the, the criminal justice system works to an extent on the basis of trust. Mm. Defence lawyers don't know what the police and prosecution have. They are reliant on them disclosing anything that might be relevant to a defence. And in this case, that failed. And if they hadn't had their own intelligence um, from their own defendants, they would never have known. So these people could have gone on trial without crucial information that would have helped their defence. Now, that is a problem that a lot of other criminal lawyers are now looking at the prosecution in their own case and saying, what might you have us about undercover about undercover officers that you haven't disclosed. And we've presumed all these years that you'll tell us the truth and actually you, you don't. So the prosecution and the police could be in trouble themselves. They could. I mean, this, isn't, up this isn't a new problem because it's a fundamental flaw that the whole disclosure regime relies on the people who are trying to get a conviction to tell the defence what might help the defence. It's a, it's, a, it's a deep tension in the system. I mean, you mentioned the uh, uh, evidence they had. Actually, it began with suspicions, didn't it? They just it felt he was kind of too good to be true. And behind his back, they referred to him as Detective Stone exactly. uh, because he was so often just have the solution to any problem and suggest uh, new uh, plan. I mean, you, John, have, this is a sort of odd comparison, but you have kind of lived among them. Sex with my interviewees. <laughs> well, you, that, you're notorious for that. That's certainly the case. But what I was thinking was the idea of, of that kind of getting to know, getting winning mm. the trust of people who are deemed extremists. Yeah. I mean, that's what Mark Kennedy had to do. He had to become one of them. That was a move you didn't have to make. But to really win, a, win their trust. Did you, do you on some level empathise with him? Yeah, and funnily enough, I, I'd argue that going native is actually a, a, a very good thing for a journalist to do uh, because it means that you have to get rid of your own preconceptions. It means you, you, it means that, you know barriers break down. It means you can understand and empathise with people more. So, I, so I think in journalism, you know, if you're with paranoid people, allowing yourself to become paranoid is great. It makes the story better and it makes the writing better. And I think people like to read it. But, but is it honest? I mean, that's the thing. Are you because you're yeah, not cause fully? I'm talk, yeah, because I'm advocating. No, I'm advocating an, an, an honest attempt to see the world from the eyes of the people that you're writing about. But the major difference between a journalist going undercover and a police officer is this, this is stank- sanctioned by the state, paid for by the state. And I mean, the strange question I found myself asking yesterday is, can the police authorise an officer to have sex with someone to gain intelligence? Well, now, I, was, I, I don't know ask. the answer. There, there don't appear to be any published rules on this, but, you know, instinctively you'd think, no. Well, there, there I was thinking it's not like they're authorising him to m- commit a crime. I mean, it's well, not- it's not illegal, but there are other things like human rights, for example. I mean, everyone has the right to respect for private and family life, and it, it, it does seem kind of prima facie like a, an invasion of someone's ah. integrity to have sex with them under false pretenses and for that to be authorised by the state. Josie, let's um, hear your perspective on this, because you've been a big public supporter of the student protests yes. that have been going on over the last few months. How do you feel if it turned out that somebody, uh, you know, within your midst or within the midst of those students, particularly, say, during some of the uglier scenes that particularly were seized on by the TV cameras, had actually been stirred up by, even set up by, an infiltrator from the police? 
I suppose it would really shock me and I think it probably shouldn't shock me. I, I should expect that there are lots of people in protests who don't feel the... Who do aren't th- genuine. Do you think it means protesters, activists themselves will now be looking at each other around the table and thinking, which one of you is uh, working for the police? I think that proper activists, not just idiots like me, are a lot more savvy than that. They are really thoughtful about that kind of thing and, and guarded and things like that. So, yeah, maybe people will be more suspicious. Except like, they weren't that guarded in this case. I mean, they were eventually, but not at first, John. No, I, I was shocked when I, when I started looking at the extreme right in America about the, the percentages of... of um, members of neo-Nazi groups that were either undercover agents or undercover informants. It was vast. It was between, I think, 25 and 40%. Mm. There was a a neo-Nazi faction that was going to blow up a chemical plant, Mm. and it was only in the latter stages of the the planning that they realised that every single member of this unit was an undercover officer (laughs) from a different... Oh, and they didn't know <laughs> no, about no, each because other. they were all from different. Because you know, you know, they, you know, you know, it's like Sunnis and Shias in 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 the American, you know, law enforcement. So they didn't know that they were working for different agencies. That's amazing. They'd all be sitting around going, "Oh, I really love Hitler. Oh, me too. I love him more than you. Oh, me, I really." <laughs> so they're egging was, each other on. I was wanting to ask uh, the, this notion that the Met sanctioned um, the guy to have sex with people. Is that is this definite? No, is, we mm. don't know. I mean, the women say that they feel. In ref- on reflection that he used their sexual relationship to gather information and, and that's part of the reason they feel so strongly about it but no one's been able to confirm whether that was part of his um, you know part of his actual brief and, um, and again you know whether it could be I don't know whether it is possible officially for the police to allow that to happen um, but I mean that's one of the problems that there are no published rules about this there's no published guidelines there's no debate it's all very opaque and, and then in, in, in ever whenever episodes like this happen everyone becomes a sort of amateur lawyer and starts throwing around legal words and one of them has been entrapment and it, it just looks you know this are people who get their legal knowledge from watching sort of CSR or something they just think um, it seems like that that people have been led in to commit crimes that they otherwise wouldn't have done potentially is that going to be part of the legal case do you think? well yeah this is one of the reasons why the defence should have been informed about the existence of an informant because then entrapment becomes an issue and if they didn't know that there was an informant then they couldn't analyse that as a part of the defence. It's a really serious breach of the right to a fair trial not to know that there was an undercover officer. Um, and you know, as far as gathering intelligence and protecting officers is concerned, there are mechanisms to protect them so that, that's not an excuse. Um, I also think, you know, looking at other... I know there are, there are a lot of undercover officers who are embedded with serious crime and terrorism and I know that shutting down a power station is a serious thing but having said that, it just doesn't seem proportionate to me to embed officers for seven years with environmental activists who are on the whole law-abiding people they're not involved in huge serious crime rackets um, and so that's another question to me about about the decisions that are made in terms of embedding kind of people. one thing to infiltrate al-qaeda we'd want them to do that but strange to be in, I- I- infiltrating the green Absolutely. movement you can read more about uh, mark kennedy at guardian.co.uk forward slash environment and uh, it's perhaps inevitable the movie people are already apparently after the story of the environmental activists themselves and perhaps even offering uh, some kind of book deal to mark kennedy himself so it should all make for a good movie and speaking of which yeah. 
Yes, the 23rd James Bond film has finally been given the green light. Having already defeated the likes of Blofeld, Oddjob and Mr Scaramanga, a man you'll remember who didn't just have a golden gun but three nipples to boot, Ian Fleming's iconic super spy almost came a cropper at the hands of the economic downturn. Now, though, the new owners of MGM Studios have confirmed that Daniel Craig will be back as Bond with the as-yet-untitled film slated for release in November 2012. Joseph, you, is this a case of double oh no or double oh yes? Are you a fan of Bond? Oh my God, I just couldn't be less interested in it. It says nothing to me about my life. And, uh, and that's sad because I wish I had more gadgets. But um, it's boring. I, I do, but thinking about what we were just talking about, it'd be so exciting if the Bond film was about him infiltrating climate change protests for seven years. And then it's like he, the things he does facilitate good even though he's on the side of evil but he sort of joins in with it and then oh it'd be movie about- makers take note i agree with you i thought when i took one look at him mark this mark stone mark kennedy the tattooed and the sort of crusty hair and everything i thought that is the new bond that's exactly. what it should look like shave it off daniel craig underneath <laughs> and he gets to have sex with lots of women as we've seen yes Perfect. that's all part of the brief that, that is i think what's so compelling about james bond it, it is fantasy but at the same time you know there are these people doing these things I mean, maybe not exactly like james bond but you know there are spies who have sex with people to gather intelligence, you know, so it's not that much of a leap of the imagination. There are police officers who do it as well. And, you know, James Bond, it just takes it to another level. So this is not a gender thing. This is not like that women don't like Bond, but men do. Yes, I a love James Bond. OK, Sorry. so that's a, but is it generational thing slightly, John, do you think? Because Josie, a bit younger than us, I would speculate. Maybe oh, no, I'm, maybe I'm, you have to have remembered the, the first films in the 60s and all that to be a true Bond. No, I have to say, I'm kind of with Josie on this, with the exception of uh, Live and Let Die and, and uh, Casino Royale. I've never been a, a big fan. I, I did once uh, recreate a Bond journey from Goldfinger, um, where we bo- I borrowed a, an Aston Martin. This was for the Guardian. I borrowed, I borrowed exactly the car that he drove and took the exact journey, stopping off at exactly the same restaurants that he stopped at in the same towns. And it was from London to Geneva, and it was a journey in Goldfinger. And because you were, of course, also suave and uh, international well, man of mystery, John Ronson. Well, the you were Guardi- the natural person. The Guardian clearly thought, you know, who is the least... <laughs> Bond-like member of our <laughs> of our contract and did you, staff, and, and and did you seduce wonderful Russian agents at the at the casino, the bl- roulette wheel? And no, I didn't do anything like that. In fact, I found the whole thing horrible because the, the amount of food he ate and wine. I mean, I just felt sick and flatulent the whole time. They had a massive <laughs> they so meal. Put the wrong person on that. Yeah, job. <laughs> I, and I didn't like the, I didn't like the whole Aston Martin thing. It felt, I tell you what, it felt like <laughs> they. they <laughs> I was living in Islington at the time, and they dropped off the car. And the second they dropped off the car, some sort of young kids came up to me and said, uh, you know, people get beaten up for having cars like that round here, mate. <laughs> and I felt, I felt like having, it felt like having a solid gold face. It was like, <laughs> it was like you know, people kind of stare at you if you want well, to I'm wondering, and, just listening to you, John, you know, Sam Mendes is the director of the new Bond film, and I'm thinking maybe this kind of angst-ridden, doubting, uh, existential Bond could be the future, because that could be the way Mendes does it. I'm against that. I'm, I mean, I blame my father, because I was raised on this diet of, you know, classic James Bond, and um, I have to say, with some shame that most of my education about the Cold War actually comes from James Bond films. But I I really miss the old James Bond and I'm not I'm not feeling this whole soul searching because Daniel Craig's edges, a bit sort of gritty, isn't he? Yeah, he is. So he had a solid gold face. <laughs> yes, that's we, well, that's the villain, of course, golfing. They are in search of a villain, and they do wonder, now that the Cold War is over, who is the natural 
villain. Um, I mean, I, you know, David Miliband is looking for a new role in life. I could see him <laughs> with the white cat on his lap stroking. He's got that very fetching little white fleck of that hair at the top of his head. I mean, could that be... Who's going to be the right Bond villain? You're the fan, Effa. You tell us. Oh, gosh. No, that's a really tricky one. Um, I mean, you know, Nick Griffin could kind of fit, fill the role. He's, okay, he's so a, you could do fashion. Yeah. You know, Bond, they did once do, did they not, um, a sort of Murdoch-like figure, a media mogul in one work. of the films. Jonathan Price played, as you remember. Who, Sarah who? Palin. They're looking at her. She's already probably annoyed yeah, okay. about them vilifying And she's her. armed, too. She's armed and dangerous. Have they ever done a woman as the master villain in Bond? Now, you're maybe, the wrong person to ask. Yeah, you're looking at me like I know anything about I don't think Bond. they have, and I think that might be the way forward. True gender equality. Exactly. A female baddie. A female baddie. I think they've got to do it, and I'm looking forward to the flatulent Bond, played by John Ronson, directed by Sarah Mendes. I think that would be excellent. That is it for this week, but before we go, just a final word from our panel. You'll have seen the wonderful news issued from Beckingham Palace this week that David and Victoria are expecting their fourth child. You might also have seen that the Pope has criticised parents who give their kids unusual names. So, with that in mind, what do you think Brooklyn, Romeo and Cruz Beckham's new brother or sister will, or perhaps should, be called? Josie, what do you think this should be the name for Mike. Brooklyn, Romeo <laughs> Mike Beckham? Be all right, Mike. Although apparently she's desperate for a girl. Oh, Jeff, Jeff Beckham, Jeff Beckham. It's sort yeah. of like got a little okay. fun trick. Do uh, you know it's so weird that that's news? Them having another child. It's not good enough. They should. She should have written a book or something. It's not. <laughs> it's not good enough to be on the news. But I, I, I quite. I'm quite enjoying this naming your child after random towns thing. I mean, you know, what about some English towns? What about Hackney or you Hackney, know, Hackney Beckham. Beckham? Stoke or Beckham. Stoke Beckham. You know, I met Victoria Beckham's father once. Uh, I was. It was one of the strangest nights in my life. I was sitting at a table in a restaurant with Victoria Beckham's father and Robbie Williams's father. And Why were you in a restaurant with the <laughs> father? He's a celeb. Uh, well, it's because I was doing the stuff with Robbie Williams at the time. We were going UFO hunting, and Robbie Williams' father was staying. And Victoria Beckham. Passed. You were going native, weren't you? You were well, doing your undercover yeah. reporter thing. Again. Well, Victoria Beckham passed and said to, to Robbie Williams, "You know, can, can I uh, leave my dad with with uh, your dad?" Uh, so they can, and so I, I listened into the conversation between these two fathers and you know what they talked about their favourite motorway service stations you yeah, are kidding dead serious okay. no, I, I, I love Heston <laughs> so it's Watford Gap Beckham uh, I tell you it's a beautiful service station <laughs> that's Tony all. Adams <laughs> Tony Adams Heston <laughs> bloody lovely I would rather hear the fathers of Beckham uh, the fathers of Victoria Adams and Robbie Williams's favourite service stations than news about Victoria Beckham's incoming <laughs> Family. I thought you were going to say then any of their music, but I think Heston <laughs> Beckham is a possible, or even, as I said, Watford Gap. Um, you heard it here first. Thank you very much to our guests, Josie Long, Afua Hirsch and John Ronson. I'll be back next week with other assorted members of what we're calling the Graniverse. In the meantime, you'll find links to everything we've discussed at guardian.co.uk forward slash week in review. That's the place to find all the details about subscribing to us on iTunes and following us on Twitter too. Our producer is Ben Green. I'm Jonathan Friedland, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.